Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a scathing report from the Senate Homeland Security Committee titled Planned in Plain Sight, which investigated the failures of the FBI, DHS and Capitol Police in not acting on a host of warnings of a potential violent attack on the Capitol. The report out today finds that Quote, at a fundamental level, the agencies fail to fulfill their mission and connect the public and non-public information they received. Joining us is Thomas Makaitis, a professor of history at DePaul University, who has taught counterterrorism courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as a part of the United States Department of Defense's Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books, including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, and Violent Extremists, understanding the domestic and international terrorist threat. Then we'll examine the fate of Prigozhin now that he has arrived in Belarus on his private jet and is holed up in a hotel without his mercenary army, which may or may not show up in Belarus, even though the dictator Lukashenko has offered to house Wagner mercenaries at an abandoned army base. Joining us is David Marples, the Distinguished University Professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta, where he teaches Russian and East European history and is a research fellow with the Contemporary Ukraine Program. He's also Honorary President of the Belarusian Academy of Arts and Sciences in Canada and is the author of 17 books, the latest of which include Stalin, His Life and Works, The War in Ukraine's Donbass and Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. Then finally, we'll speak with Dr. Tatiana Kulakevich, who is a researcher on Eastern Europe, born and raised in Belarus. She is a permanent instructor in research methods and quantitative analysis at the University of South Florida School of Interdisciplinary Global Studies and a research fellow and affiliated faculty at the University's Institute on Russian, European and Eurasian Studies. She just returned from Ukraine and we'll assess whether in gangster fashion, Putin and Lukashenko set a trap for Prigozhin in Belarus since the warlord may have been influenced in his decision to turn back 150 miles from Moscow by the FSB's threats on his family and the families of Wagner commanders. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising, as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community 
in post-truth America. And joining us now is Thomas Makaitis, who's a professor of history at DePaul University, who has taught counterterrorism's courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as part of the U.S. Department of Defense's Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books, including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, and Violent Extremists, Understanding the Domestic and International Terrorist Threat. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Makaitis. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Senate Homeland Security Committee, obviously it's with a Democratic majority, have issued a 105-page report today, Tuesday, basically outlining the incredible failures of Mm -hmm. the intelligence that was provided to the Department of Homeland Security prior to the January 6th uh, insurrection. And first of all, Tom, wasn't the whole point of the DHS and the whole reorganization of the intelligence community and making sure that things didn't drop through the cracks and that the various alphabet soups of intelligence agencies actually spoke to each other, that was all a result of the failures of 9-11. So are we to conclude that the system has not been fixed? Well, the system is constantly in need of tweaking. And as you remember that the reforms post 9-11 were geared at uh, focusing on international threats, threats coming from outside the United States. Now, there was a period of time shortly after that where the all of the intelligence agencies shifted from a need-to-know mentality to an obligation to provide. Well, then what we had was a series of colossal uh, leaks, the Snow, Edward Snowden case, uh, uh, Chelsea Manning, most recently this case of the young man uh, with the National Guard up in Massachusetts, so that the agencies got a little more, um, you know, uh, t- uh, holding material closer to their chest. But the other thing here is the failure wasn't within DHS. It was between the FBI, DHS, and the uh, the Capitol Police. Um, and the other the other component of it was that um you know that they um they did they were very leery of violating privacy remember this all came in the aftermath of real concern about how the government handled things like the george floyd case and the black lives matter protests um so there was a kind of a going softly but even even after all this it, this was egregious i mean i was on with another, uh, you know, another academic right after the November 2020 election. And we were saying that the, the likelihood of violence is incredibly high um, and they need to prepare for it. Now, that was very general. But then on the 19th of December, when the president of the United States named January 6th, be there, will be wild. That alone should have been grounds. You didn't need, you know, big intelligence force to tell you that just beefing up security, even if people didn't show up armed, which they did, that just crowd control is going to be an issue. Um, and so it really is kind of a head scratcher um, that they didn't do that. And, and even in addition to the intelligence failure, the report really excoriates, you know, the command structure of the Capitol Police, the failure to call on the National Guard, the lack of training, the lack of equipment. I mean, just everything from A to Z was just terribly mishandled. But is the Department of Homeland Security in charge? I mean, is it sort of like the clearinghouse, the one place where these various components like the FBI and the Capitol Police are able to cross-reference and share data and 
information? It, it's not entirely that simple. In other words, you know, the, the thing is, there's so much information. You don't want to push so much information up to the top. They actually had what we were, we call a, you know, kind of a kind of a fusion cell, the uh, interagency intelligence cooperation center, which was part of the Capitol Police. That was supposed to be the body that would pull all this material in. So, you know, it was the information. It wasn't that, you know, yes, there was a failure perhaps of the Capitol Police to go and ask, but it's also the obligation of these organizations, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security, to push information to them, not wait for them to ask. So all along the line, there were all of these failures that took place. Um, you know, and there's I don't know who's going to be held accountable. There was a horribly snarled, uh, ambiguous chain of command for requesting support of the, of the D.C. National Guard on the day of the incident. There was no formal request. You needed the approval of the sergeant of arms of both houses and the architect of the Capitol. Uh, you know, everything imaginable went wrong. We're very, very fortunate that it wasn't actually worse than, than it was. But this uh, Senate committee report uh, that came out from the Oversight Committee on the Department of Homeland Security... Mm -hmm found that yep. in December of 2020, the FBI received information that the Proud Boys, which is obviously a far-right extremist group, that they mm -hmm. planned to be in Washington to literally kill people. Now, that should have got yep. somebody's attention. It should have, and I can't explain why. You're absolutely right. And, and you know, by the way, not everybody... Um, who, you know, who was in favor of creating yet another monolithic organization like Department of Homeland Security, which sucked up a lot of resources and still does. So, you know, the question of whether that was the best fix for the failures of 9-11, the jury is still out on that. But absolutely right. Um, there's no question that information has been pushed, should have been pushed forward. But at the same time, they weren't doing it. The FBI was also getting its hands on good information that this was going on. Even without that, what we call the open source information that, that you know, anybody could have, you know, Googled and looked into, saw there was an awful lot of activity going on that, you know, just, just as a precaution alone, I mean, they, they hardened the perimeter around the Capitol for the State of the Union. They could have done that in this case. That alone would have been would have been the great thing, and they could have agreed to have the guard there on the day of. Um, but they didn't. I mean, the day before, the chief of the Capitol Police informally discussed it, but never issued a formal request. And there was a hesitancy in the Department of Defense and the guard after what had happened with that incident where the president, President Trump, went across and held the Bible up at the church, the clearing of, of, of legitimate protesters, the, you know, the robust display of force, there was a reluctance to be, you know, okay, let's not interfere with what might just be a legitimate protest. But there was a way to do it to keep this stuff not as not high visibility, but certainly in a position to stop what actually occurred. And, you know, really everybody dropped the ball. But according to this new report, that mm -hmm. between the 3rd and 4th of January 2021, the intelligence mm -hmm. agency knew that because they've been monitoring social media, they knew about these multiple postings of that armed violence was yeah. in the cards and that there was an intention to storm the Capitol. And as late as 8.57 a.m. on January the 6th, the senior watch officer at the Department of Homeland Security's National Operations Center wrote, 
there is no indication of civil disobedience. So I, I can't I can't explain that except to say that for whatever reason the analysts did not consider that the threats were credible. Uh, that's again a bit of a head scratcher for me, but the only thing I can conjecture is in fact that there would be a ton of information coming in about, you know, violence all over and, you know, just kind of angry posts. And for whatever reason, they determined that they, they, this was not, that these, none of these threats, either individually or in aggregate, were credible. Um, I find that really hard to believe, but that's the only thing I can think of short of, you know, some sort of complicity, which I, I don't I don't think was the case. I, I don't see any conspiracy. I just see, you know, a real colossal failure. And I, I think it's going to take an awful lot more investigating and digging to figure that out. And I don't know if we'll ever get a satisfactory answer. But Tom McCondis, in some of the convictions of the leaders of, of these militia groups like mm-hmm. the Proud Boys, wasn't there FBI information that was used to convict them, weren't there? No, oh, there were uh, tons of it, yeah. Yeah, so they they were monitoring but, these guys. And that, and Stuart Rhodes, where did, he met somewhere in a, a basement with the Proud Boys. All of that stuff yeah, was it, known. Well, I, the one thing, the only thing that, and again, this is speculation, but that I can think of is because Enrico Tario, the leader of the Proud Boys, had already been, you know, arrested for burning a, a Black Lives Matter flag and ordered by the judge to remain outside of D.C. Could they possibly have thought, well, okay, we have a lid at least on that front? Um, but yeah, uh, now to be fair, it's you know, putting after the fact when they've actually committed a crime, um, you know, you can you can you can put together a case much more effectively than you can prevent something. I mean, that sounds a little sad, but it's true. But on the other hand, I don't, you know, there's also this, at what point do these posts cross a line from open incitement? I would agree with you. To me, they sound like that. But even if they weren't, why, what would it have cost to have precautions? That's what I'm just totally baffled by. Even, Even if we assume there were no guns there at all, which as you and I both recognize, there was evidence that there would be, just from a crowd control perspective alone, why wouldn't you put a secure perimeter and have more law enforcement and possibly the guard present there just as a deterrent, just for the crowd alone? Never mind that they came with, you know, dressed in battle rattle with bear spray and in some cases guns. I mean, it, it, that is, to me just is very, very hard to explain. Well, the 105-page report from the Senate Homeland Security Committee is titled planned in plain sight. And yep. <laughs> that certainly says a lot. Yep. And its yep. conclusion is at a fundamental level, the agencies failed to fulfill their mission and connect the public and non-public information they received. So yep. again, you know, you feel like you're going back to pre-9-11. That's a, the same. I was. It, it, it happened to be Bob Pape at the University of Chicago who's done a ton of work on, on terrorism as well. He and I were on a local television talk show in uh, mid-November, warning of violence. And after the attacks, we were both on again trying to explain why, if we could see this without access to any kind of classified information, that this risk was incredibly high, how those who had even more information 
um, you know, accessing, you know, these online sites and, and, and monitoring all this activity couldn't put this puzzle together. And even if they had been wrong, even if they what would what would it have hurt to have more of a presence there? I mean, you know, it, it, when you consider the consequences which we witnessed of not being prepared, um, I mean, you re- like I said, we're very lucky we didn't have a bloodbath. Um, and that's, you know, to the credit of those brave officers who were there and some, you know, some cool thinking individuals inside the building and so on. But, I mean, the rest of it is it's still very difficult to uh, to understand. Well, the FBI apparently had information that I think it was uh, Stuart Rhodes's crew were discussing, and the other keepers were discussing, because of the firearms laws in the District of Columbia, which prove in a way that that <laughs> that gun control laws actually work. They were saying, you know, you can't bring your guns into D.C., but let's stash them. Yep. across the river in Virginia, and then we'll use them when we... I mean, there was actually a plan. I think it was the Oath Keepers. Correct me if there I'm wrong. The Oath yeah. Their plan was to to hold the Capitol hostage, wasn't it? Something to that effect. But but the fact, yes, that, that was one of the things they were able to convict Rhodes on for seditious conspiracy, was that, look, you pre-planned, you pre-positioned weapons, and he tried to argue disingenuously, or his lawyers did, that, well, this was just in case the president invoked the Militia Act and called us, you know, into the in, in to restore order, which is just absolute nonsense and was pretty transparently seen to be such. Um, but again, yeah, I mean, and now do I, did they have any kind of security on the entryways, uh, you know, across the bridges and so on? Because, I mean, one thing to consider is there was no shooting on the part of the crowd storming the building. So, you know, they, they might have, there might've been some success, um, at least keeping that from happening. Why? I don't know. The president, we know, as I recall, told, his, you know, his Secret Service to get rid of the metal detectors at his, at his rally, which in itself is, you know, it was a warning sign. But by that, of course, things were already underway. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, it's, um, I don't know how far accountability will go. Of course, you know, we've got a different director of the FBI and everything, but, um, you know, uh, how certainly, certainly there should be a, a reckoning as to, you know, why, uh, this, you know, this this happened the way it did. I mean, the FBI has a lot to answer for. So does DHS. And a hundred page report by the Senate is really the tip of an iceberg. Now there need to be deep dives by both of those agencies into the strategic failures on that day. But Trump was told by the Secret Service that some of the people in the crowd or gathering in the crowd on the other side of the magnetometers they were told that there's some of them are armed and Trump well, said, get rid of the mags. They're not a threat to me. They're my people. Exactly. He exactly. knew they were armed and thought that was okay. Well, and that's exactly one of the reasons he was impeached and why the, why the January 6th commi- uh, committee um, was recommending, you know, that that, that that be looked at more and that the possibility of criminal charges at least be explored. But, yeah, I think everybody knew that. It's also one of the reasons, by the way, the Secret Service refused to take him, if, if the stories are, are accurate, to the Capitol and whisk him back to the White House. 
Um, so, you know, I mean, there's everything, everything was there by the time, by the time he was, you know, he was saying that and the crowd was already starting to move. And, and by the way, some of the uh, bad actors were already, they didn't go to the rally. They were already on their way to the Capitol. Um, <clears throat> it was a little late to do much, but even then some kind of firm action might've gotten a guard deployed. And what's interesting is Trump went back to the white house essentially locked himself in a room and watched it all on TV and no one could get him to make any statement until very late in the day when it was clear that the crisis had passed. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's you know, a lot of accountability to be had and, and a lot of unanswered questions. I think when I read the report, it, it really raised as, you know, as many questions as it answered. So, who else is going to read the report, Tom, and who's going to act on it, just in closing? Well, I think the FBI should be doing it, um, and Homeland Security both. Um, you know, it, I don't expect any more action out of a divided Congress. Um, I suppose the Justice Department could look at, I, I don't see any sign of criminality. I, I mean, I, you know, but I'm not obviously not a lawyer or a, you know, a DA, but um I think certainly they have to look at the structural things. Now, the Capitol Police, I think, have already engaged in some serious reform. Uh, there was also poor training on their part, not enough officers. You know, um, there was no there wasn't a good incident command system in place where they could, you know, they could they could monitor because they were so stretched that even senior people were on the line trying to hold back the crowd. So, I mean, I think they've begun to um, to make some needed change, but the organizations are going to have to. You know they're gonna they're gonna have to do some very difficult soul searching and let's let's hope that the pressure is kept on them to do that. Well, Thomas Picardis, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Happy to do it. You have a nice afternoon. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Thomas Picardis, who's a professor of history at DePaul University, who has taught counterterrorism courses for the past thirteen years at venues around the world as part of the United States Department of Defense's Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books, including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, and Violent Extremists, Understanding the Domestic and International Terrorist Threat. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the fate of Prigozhin now that he's arrived in Belarus on his private jet and he's holed up in a hotel without his mercenary army. He changed his clothes and shined his boots and combed his dark hair down And his mother cried as he walked out don't take your guns to town, son, leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. He laughed and kissed his mom and said, you're Billy Joe's a man. I can shoot it. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Marples, who's a distinguished university professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta, where he teaches Russian and East European history and is a research fellow with the Contemporary Ukraine Program. He's also the honorary president of the Belarusian Academy of Arts and Sciences in Canada and the author of a number of books, including Stalin, His Life and Works, The War in Ukraine's Donbass and Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Marples. Thank you, Ian. So, what do you make of the arrival in Minsk of Prigozhin after his 
coup attempt, as some, or mutiny, as Putin refers to it. My understanding, or my assumption was, that Prigozhin would want to have his 25,000-man Wagner army essentially as 25,000 bodyguards. So I'm finding it pretty extraordinary that his private plane landed in Belarus and he's now essentially not so much in the custody of the dictator Lukashenko, but he's being hosted by him and Lukashenko is clearly tied to Putin and Putin's security services have thoroughly penetrated Belarus. So uh, what do you think is going on? But I think the three figures, the three main figures, Putin, Prigozhin, Lukashenko, are all quite quite closely related. And Prigozhin has long been an admirer of Lukashenko. You know, he's um, praised him for some of his actions when he hijacked the plane a couple of years ago. He, he praised that and uh, said it was a good, great thing to do and how much he admires him. So when Lukashenko stepped in as a, as a potential mediator, uh, whether he was asked to do so, whether he volunteered, I think probably he was asked to do so. Um, it provided a way out for both sides, whereby they wouldn't lose face and they wouldn't end up in a mass battle for Moscow, which would kill a lot of people and maybe ultimately bring down the regime or certainly bring down one of them. So it's a way out. I don't think it's a very satisfactory way out in many ways because Prigozhin clearly is the instigator of a revolt against the government, no matter how much he phrases it as against the military leadership. Um, the military leadership is part of Putin's government, and he stood by that military leadership. So if you attack them, you essentially are attacking Putin as well. And it wasn't something totally new in that he was complaining about these people long before this happened. I mean, for months and months, he's been making YouTube statements or other media statements just foul-mouthed lambasting these the two main figures um that is shoigu as the minister of defense and garasimov as the head of the armed forces and saying they're incompetent and also decrying the reasons why they went into ukraine in the first place he said you know there's no credibility to their claims that they went there to denazify ukraine and because there are no nazis fighting on the ukrainian side and he also said this wasn't a nato war against ukraine it was a ukrainian a russian war against ukraine so he put it in very stark terms and therefore the idea that after all this and then massive assault on the government he could simply go free is is well it's inconceivable to me actually in the longer term i can't see how long it could last so do you think that the deal between Putin and Lukashenko and Prigozhin for him to stand down, he was only 150 miles from Moscow and they'd already blown up some bridges on the main road to slow down his assault. So they were clearly panicked. So do you think the deal was to avoid a full-scale battle and then give him an out, let him go to, to Belarus and then deal with him later? Yeah, that that on the one side, that that's probably works as far as the, the Russian side is concerned, that they reach some agreement just to simply stop this thing. Uh, from his perspective, he may also have realized that he'd come about as far as he could go safely, and that if he did get involved in a battle for Moscow, 
uh, his force his forces would have been destroyed and he would have been killed i think that's most likely um projection of what would have happened if that war had taken place because to capture a city the size of moscow uh, given its various armed forces the national guard the fsb um regular army forces etc it would have been nigh on impossible unless there had been major revolts from within those organizations people declaring their willingness to join Prigozhin, and that didn't happen so i think from Prigozhin's perspective it's also a way out as well at that at that late stage so he's there now in belarus he arrived in his own private jet do we know where he is where's he staying well, reportedly, he's staying in the Green City Hotel, which is a fairly new uh, hotel on the western outskirts of Minsk, um, with, a, with a good reputation. I mean, it's a good hotel, but it's um, it's got numerous floors, um, solid-looking building, and if we, you know, we've been reported that he's there, and Lukashenko has also said that if he needs to use an old military base. Uh, he will provide him with that so that he can train um, either his current group who stayed with him or, or would side with him or recruit new people to the Wagner group and keep them inside Belarus and maybe help to train the Belarusian army recruits. So he's, he's looking in that kind of direction. So he only came with a handful of people, right? He didn't come with his army, with his Wagner group. No, and, and it's hard to know what's happened to them. I, mean, I think some of them probably um, resented the move that they actually stopped because they were all primed to go to Moscow and there's no logical reason to stop. Um, and some of them may remain loyal, but I don't think we could even imagine that he's got 25,000 soldiers who are prepared to fight for him now. I would think it would be considerably less unless he builds up some new resources over time. And if he's allowed to stay and do that, uh, I think he could do. But Belarus's military is quite small because the biggest force is essentially the Praetorian Guard protecting the dictator, Lukashenko, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, they've, in terms of, um, let's say, elite troops, they've probably got less than 10,000. There are the regular intakes of recruits going to serve um, for short terms from sort of 18 years old and onward but they are really raw recruits you know these are people who just go in the army because they're forced to go in the army and often it means you know if they cannot find some way to get into a higher educational institute to avoid military service then they're going to end up in the army so it tends to be it's a bit of a generalization but it tends to be from the poorer strata of society, the people who end up going into the army because those a little bit better off can find ways around getting in there. Um, so yeah, it's it's relatively small. And I think if it had gone into Ukraine at the beginning of the war, the chances are it would have been obliterated. So he's boasting about the nuclear weapons from Russia that have apparently most of them have arrived, I understand. That's the latest from Lukashenko. Well, he said that, but the, the Americans haven't seen any evidence of any arriving, and they've got pretty good satellite coverage of, of the whole zone. So I would imagine that they would have been seen if they'd arrived so far. I think probably 
Lukashenko is indulging in some wishful thinking in saying he's already got them. Uh, certainly they've been promised. And it would seem to me that they would have certain places where they would be located. But I don't think they've arrived yet. You know, I, I really don't see any evidence from anywhere to suggest they've arrived. Well, he, uh, Lukashenko boasted that the Russian nuclear weapons that he's getting are three times more powerful than those dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. So, and he also made the most amazing statement that he's, he said that any other country that wants to join in his union with Russia, he'd be willing to share, them with, share the nuclear weapons with them. But he, yeah. of course he said as a caveat, oh, I'd have to check with uh, President Putin. <laughs> yeah, God, I mean, whether he, had, he would have the capability to, to fire them on his own accord seems to me very doubtful. Uh, the Russians, as they did back in the Soviet period when they had nuclear weapons in Belarus, they controlled them directly from Moscow. They weren't controlled from Minsk. And it seems like that would be the case this time. I mean, even the nuclear power plant in Belarus is built on nuclear reactors and financed by Russia and pretty much under Russian control. And I think it would be the same for the nuclear weapons if and when they arrive. In terms of the size of them, I mean, three three times higher than Hiroshima by today's standards, that's not very powerful, even for you know a tactical nuclear weapon. Um, it, it would cause problems in the short term if, you, if they were fired, for example, at nearby states like Poland and, and the Baltics. Um, I can see why that would be a potential problem. And I imagine in, in those countries, there are some countermeasures being taken because Lukashenko, as you say, has announced that they will be available next month. I mean, they will be in place by next month. So it some of it is bluster, and I think some of it is is in uh, the way of trying to make Belarus a bit more powerful and give Lukashenko in particular a bit more leeway in his dealings with foreign states and in, even in his dealings with, um, with, with neighbours of the former Soviet Union. Um, because he's, he's in a position where previously he's been totally reliant on Putin and Moscow for loans, for energy supplies, um, and when he's been on foreign trips, he tends to go to Moscow. He's not invited to many places around the world. He went to, he can um, go to North Korea, he can go to Iran, and he can go to breakaway regions of Georgia like South Ossetia and Abhazia. Apart from that, he can't go anywhere. You know, he's stuck there, sanctions are applied, and many of his exports have gone down dramatically since uh, Lithuania and other countries closed their ports to goods from Belarus. So this is a guy in a crisis, and he's found this new role as a, as a mediator and also you know, hopes for these weapons to make him look a bit stronger. But what can his people do about him? I mean, the guy's a joke in a, in a kind of tin pot dictator image, you know, this big stupid hat, military hat that he has and all of the brass trappings and medals. And I mean, he's, he's a total throwback to the worst of these Soviet thugs, and he even has a KGB. <laughs> he didn't change the name like the, the, the Russians did. Mm. Um, so he's a complete anachronism, but he's, as we were mentioning earlier, he has an enormous number of 
his internal security people keeping him in power and keeping the people down. And we saw this massive demonstration uh, when he stole the last election. And, yeah. and, you know, his opposition leader, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, she's in uh, in exile next door in Lithuania. So, I mean, how do you see, you study this country. I mean, it's so sad to have such a, you know, a disgusting caricature of a of a dictator running your country with his dreadful son it reminds me of Saddam Hussein's sons. Yeah, yeah. Certainly the oldest two do. And I, th- I think, you know, the, the issue really goes back to 2020 when he had the last elections and they, they badly backfired. I mean, he clearly lost that election. And there were mass demonstrations in protest when the results were announced that Lukashenko got 80% of the vote because everyone realized that these were fictitious figures. And I, I talked in um, last, late last year in Warsaw with the former ambassador in Argentina. And he told me that he took note of all the foreign embassies and the voting in those embassies, which were open, and that Sikhanovskaya got more than 60% of the vote in the first round of that election. And everybody knew that. And then the foreign ministry imploded and half the staff left, but half stayed. And in terms of the security guys, um, yes, Lukashenko was protected by the core of them, but many of them also left. And they formed an organization in Poland called BIPOL. And the goal of BIPOL is to coordinate in any attack on the Lukashenko regime, which could be carried out, for example, by the military brigade fighting in Ukraine on the Ukrainian side. It's called the Kalinovsky Brigade. Um, These are hardened military types who volunteered to go and fight. But their goal is for Ukraine to win the war because they believe that if Ukraine wins the war, Putin falls. And when Putin falls, Lukashenko will fall. It's not a given, but certainly the chances will be much increased if, if Ukraine wins the war. Well, David Marples, I thank you for joining us here today. Always a pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with David Marples, who is a distinguished university professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta, where he teaches Russian and East European history and is a research fellow with the Contemporary Ukraine Program. He's also honorary president of the Belarusian Academy of Arts and Sciences in Canada and the author of a number of books, including Stalin, His Life and Works, The War in Ukraine's Donbass, Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment whether, in gangster fashion, Putin and Lukashenko set a trap for Prigozhin in Belarus, since the warlord may have been influenced in his decision to turn back 150 miles from Moscow by the FSB's threats on his family and the families of Wagner commanders. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Tatsiana Kulakovic, who is a researcher on Eastern Europe, born and raised in Belarus. She's a permanent instructor in research methods and quantitative analysis at the University of South Florida School of Interdisciplinary Global Studies and a research fellow and affiliated faculty at the university's Institute on Russian, European and Eurasian Studies. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Tatiana Kulakovic. Oh, hello. I'm happy to be back. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, you are now in uh, Portugal, having just been in Ukraine. And uh, clearly, the last few days have been extraordinary in Prigozhin's move for his march to Moscow. Uh, it came within 150 miles of Moscow. And a deal was struck between the Belarusian dictator Lukashenko, Putin, and Prigozhin, for Prigozhin to retreat and somehow have a haven in Belarus. Uh, he's there now. Lukashenko's greeted him. He's staying in a hotel. Lukashenko's offered up a, an unused military base. So at this point, Tatiana, I don't know how many uh, of the Wagner fighters have accepted Putin's deal. He said you can go home or you can can sign up for the military, the Russian military, or you can go to Belarus. Do you have any idea of how many of the fighters of Wagner have taken up that offer offer and are prepared to move to Belarus? Well, it's unclear how many. What's clear right now is we should not call the heaven Belarus is a haven for Prigozhin because Belarus is, uh, you know, Russian forces are all in Belarus and uh, Lukashenko is has been a puppet in uh, Putin's hands. Uh, he had no choice but to provide Belarusian territory for the offensive against Ukraine. So I would say Prigozhin is more like sitting in a cage these days in Belarus, surrounded by KGB, Belarusian KGB. And um, and uh, what we should be expecting more is that uh, while the news and TV pays less attention to Prigozhin, he might be eliminated because he is a traitor um, to uh, the Russian government and Putin himself. And um, in terms of uh, Wagner, uh, well, yeah, we don't know how many people um, want and will come to Belarus, despite the fact that Lukashenko, you know, we can say in quotation marks, welcomed them, um, because they are also seen as traitors, because they went against the Russian government. And yesterday in this Putin speech, he said that, well, uh, if you are a patriot, you know, to the Russian land, you should actually join a Russian army. And if you are not, then you should probably go to Belarus. And and in this speech, you can basically see them as traitors. That's what I would, that's how it reads from the speech. So you're saying, uh, Tatiana, that Prigozhin is in a cage in Belarus, it doesn't seem likely that that many of the. I mean, I always assumed that that he wouldn't give himself up as, as just an individual. He'd he'd be surrounded by his army of twenty five thousand, in effect having twenty five thousand bodyguards, but that didn't happen. So, do you think that Lukashenko and Putin have lured 
uh, Prigozhin into a trap? I would say so, because uh, he, he could have been blackmailed also. He, they could have threatened his family, and uh, that would have been enough for him to just surrender. Uh, also, we've seen a lot of videos uh, when uh, uh, Prigozhin was... Um, uh, you know, attracting criminals to to his um, to support him, and these criminals right now, when he uh, is in Belarus, they're saying, "Well, you betrayed us, really." And as be as sitting in the prison, being criminals and uh, living according to the prison, you know, law again in quotation marks, uh, this kind of behavior should not be forgiven and. Uh, uh, that's not how you how you do things according to uh, if you live according to uh, you know people who are who who were in prison. So um, yeah, I would say uh, he, he even though uh, Lukashenko says yes, Prigozhin is guaranteed uh, protection. And Piskov, the spokesman, the Kremlin spokesman, also says that he is guaranteed protection. He is actually still, we should not be fooled, he is a traitor. And um, the traitors, no one can trust him. And uh, let him uh, talk and, and, uh, and speak on Telegram any longer. And do uh, many things that he, he was doing before. Uh, and uh, another thing is that there are so many different um, private military companies in Russia. It's not just Wagner. And Wagner uh, has been under sanctions uh, by the West for a long time already. So it's not beneficial, actually, to keep Wagner. So we should not be surprised that if, if, if even if Wagner disappears completely from the uh, scenery, um, in a, in a, you know, not maybe immediately. Same with Prigozhin, he might not disappear immediately. But uh, there are there are other other cooks, as the Prigozhin has been known. His his name, his how to call this? This name he he he, he had. Um, uh, there are many people who can take this role and play this role. And do and comp and they fulfill the um, goals that private military companies are designed for uh, to to achieve achieve and um, things that uh, that the government cannot achieve openly with the army. Well, there are Russian sources now saying that the Wagner founder Dmitry Utkin, uh, a colonel in the GRU, who is a out-and-out fascist, he's an admirer of the Nazis. Uh, he has all kinds of SS tattoos over his body. He chose the name of the Wagner private military company based upon his affection for the composer, Wagner, who was Hitler's favorite composer. So mm -hmm. he's apparently, now they're thinking of bringing him back. I don't know whatever happened to him, where he's been all these years. But you mentioned uh, a little while ago, Tatiana, that there were threats against Prigozhin's family. Apparently, that is what we're learning from British intelligence, that there were direct threats from the FSB on Prigozhin's family and the families of uh, Wagner commanders, that their families would be harmed unless they stopped the armed rebellion. 
that's pretty KGB textbook stuff. Not surprising, right? Oh, not surprising at all. If you are going against the, uh, you know, if you're playing the game, you should be prepared to play it. And looks like he was, he didn't know, you know, considered all, all his cards uh, in his hands and had to go into that trap. And uh, when he's in this trap, uh, um, no one will forgive. No one will forgive. And we already see that... Um, you know, Putin giving awards to Russian army representatives and different officers. And that also confirms that everybody who threatens the government and army is a traitor, even though uh, even though Lukashenko is playing the role of a, you know, a friend of Prigozhin and saying nice things and ensuring the protection. This protection is not a long-lived protection. You cannot be protected from Belarusian territory and all these promises and the declarations um, on the media, by, even by high sources, are, cannot, can, can be switched, changed, uh, reversed, and even there is a saying that when, you know, a top official says that I'm giving you the word of an officer, mean like, you know, you can read it uh, that it's really not going to happen. It's not, nothing is guaranteed for you. So, Tatiana, you're just back from Ukraine. So what do you, did you hear in Ukraine about the reaction to what's just happened? A lot of analysts are saying that this is obviously good for Ukraine, that they have the Russians so distracted uh, their morale has to be deeply impacted by all of this, and that the Wagner group were the most effective fighting force the Russians had, and they've essentially taken them off the field. I'm not sure how relevant any of that is, but what's your understanding? A lot of analysts are also saying that the, the counteroffensive coming from Ukraine is actually not doing that well. It's stumbling a little bit. What was your takeaway from Ukraine? Uh-huh. Well, uh... So I would say that uh, the morale on the ground was definitely uh, shaken. Uh, but, uh, I mean, the morale of the Russian side, because they are observing uh, the internal uh, disagreements. And uh, Putin yesterday actually openly declared that he paid over $86 billion uh, to Wagner supporting um, Prigozhin with a, over 80 given to the top commanders without mentioning Prigozhin's name. So it's basically, you know, saying, yeah, I, I gave them money and uh, uh, <laughs> and and they 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 betrayed me and um, other people may think like where is my money also and all this uh, should I be doing anything for the uh, you know for for the for the Russian government and. Um, uh, you know, uh, Russian or Russian Ukrainians uh, have been inspired actually in 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 terms of observing internal disagreements uh, by the Russian side, and they're saying, "Let them kill each other," <laughs> and uh, that helps us, and we are going to be going on with the counteroffensive. In terms of the counteroffensive going slow or fast. No one declared the speed. We cannot say it's going fast or it's not going fast. 
it's definitely going faster and better than when Russia was doing was trying to um, occupy Ukrainian territories. You remember, if we think about Bakhmut, it took nine months, and the Ukrainian side is going uh, in a faster pace already. We should also remember that uh, they still don't have F-16 fighting jets, and they are doing everything slowly, protecting the lives of Ukrainian soldiers. I would not. Uh, I would actually, you know, argue that it's not going. Uh, you know, it's going slow, slow. We don't know, and the and the uh, the um, latest I heard like yesterday, I don't remember who said that. You some Ukrainian top official that we are still uh, we are still to see uh, interesting developments. And again, maybe F-16s are going to be fi- coming faster because uh, of all these observations or of developments what's going on in in, in uh, with Russian side. Well, obviously, when you're on attack, as opposed to in defense, you suffer more casualties. And Ukraine certainly doesn't have the manpower pool, population a little over 40 million, compared to Russia's 150 million. So that's always been a concern, hasn't it? And the Ukrainians and Zelensky, President Zelensky, has often said that you know, we're trying to preserve and protect our lives. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the case with the Russians. They seem to be perfectly happy to throw their young men into the meat grinder. Definitely. And uh, it's it, it's called the meat. They call the lives of people as meat. Uh, and they do not even count that uh, the manpower. Uh, that's why we, we, we've seen... So many male population, Russian, uh, uh, you know, going to uh, Georgia and Armenia and other Kazakhstan and all other places as soon as possible. Uh, people don't want to go and fight also in, in, in Russian, uh, on the Russian side, because we should remember that we, are, we, we live in the age of the Internet. There is a, you know, everybody can open Telegram and news and uh, read that uh, people are dying and no one is even uh, returning the bodies to Russia. But yes, the government does not count lives. Ukraine does count and tries to preserve every every person. And uh, I've seen in Ukraine, I've seen, um, you know, I went to the hospital and uh, the doctors are fighting for every life. There is a big support and um, you can feel it, like emotions, you can feel that, um, you know, the war is happening. Life still goes on as well in Kiev, but um, it's a mixed emotion. Uh, and you can see people in uniforms and uh, again all fighting for lives but um, you can see also a lot of colors you know the flag colors uh, the pride is there and uh, that's inspiring and um, you know uh, makes you even more convinced that Ukraine will win uh, and you get you know fight back and return to its land even if it's a long war, which is what Putin's prepared for, just in closing? 
Yeah, no, but uh, uh, this what this is what Putin is preparing. That's not what Ukraine is preparing for. With mm-hmm. F-16s, the the uh, the pace should uh, get faster, should speed up, and uh, at the same time, we also saw that uh, uh, even uh, when Putin was threatened by uh, what is it around five thousand people. Uh, leading by Prigozhin, uh, he left. He left Moscow. He flew away on his jet, and many oligarchs also, you know, fueled and left. And this uh, also shows that, um, well, uh, not 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 that much is needed to 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 for him to leave. And we can compare that to Zelensky. Zelensky stayed when he was offered protection when. Uh, at the, during the first days of the war, so it's a different picture on each side. Sure. Yeah, you know? he said, I, I don't want a ride, I want ammunition. Yeah, I, yeah. I thank and you. Putin uh, left, yeah, yeah <laughs> right. right away. <laughs> so uh, let's be positive, let's be positive and wait for F 16s, for Ukraine to speed, speed up its uh, you know, fight. Well, Tatiana Kulikovich, I thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, always a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Tatiana Kulikevich, who is a researcher on Eastern Europe, born and raised in Belarus. She's a permanent instructor in research methods of quantitative analysis at the University of South Florida School of Interdisciplinary Global Studies and a research fellow at the affiliated faculty at the university's Institute on Russian, European and Eurasian Studies. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by